ERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. From the music of the founder of Bluegrass Music, that's Bill Monroe, to the very latest contemporary bluegrass, Brownswound brings all varieties of bluegrass music to you. Hosted by Darwin Davidson, with lots of help from Karen Mulford, Marilyn Ryan, Paul Anderson, and other hosts, it all happens every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. right here on Community Radio. That's WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. We look forward to seeing you every Thursday. Support for WERU comes from our listeners, volunteers, business supporters, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. To find out what you can do to support community radio, go to WERU.org. Thank you. We have about 40 seconds before the hour of 10 o'clock and Coastal Conversations. Let's take a quick look at the detailed forecast for today, tonight, and tomorrow. Today, mostly sunny with a high near 51. Southwest winds 14 to 18 miles an hour with gusts as high as 30 miles an hour. Tonight, a chance of showers, mainly between midnight and 2 a.m., then rain likely after 2 a.m., areas of fog after 2 a.m., and cloudy with a low around 49. Breezy with a southwest wind 18 to 20 miles an hour, chance of precipitation 60%. Friday rain likely, areas of fog after 9 a.m. It's time for Coastal Conversations. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today's show is about the Penobscot Watershed. We initially were going to do this show last Friday, but some of you may have noticed that we canceled due to icy roads, so we're grateful to be able to do the show today instead. The Penobscot watershed is huge. It drains nearly one-third of the state of Maine and serves a critical role in Maine's history, economy, and culture. A number of people and organizations are coming together to celebrate and understand this vast watershed on April 9th, when the 2016 Penobscot Watershed Conference will take place in Northport.
So in anticipation of that event, we'll talk today about the past, present, and perhaps most importantly, the future significance of the Penobscot watershed. Some of our listeners may have caught the first half of this conversation on a recent Talk of the Towns program when host Ron Beard also explored these issues. If you want to hear archives of that show, we encourage you to go check out the public affairs archives at weru.org and look for the March 11th Talk of the Towns program. So today, our guests in the studio, I'm excited to have all three of these folks. This is going to be a great conversation. We have John Banks, who's the Director of Natural Resources at the Penobscot Indian Nation. Good morning, John. Good morning. We have Steve Miller, who's the Executive Director at Islesboro Islands Trust. Hi, Steve. Morning. And we have Catherine Schmidt, who's the Communications Director at Maine Sea Grant and the author of the recent book, The President's Salmon. Good morning, Catherine. Hi, Natalie. So you all have a very specific relationship with this watershed. Um, and um, let's start maybe by um, trying to, well, actually, let's start a little bit with some information about the conference. Um, so we can do a little bit of information about when the conference is happening and, and who's, what sort of your expectations are of the conference. And then we'll jump into the watershed for a minute. So Steve, tell us a little bit about the Penobscot Watershed Conference. Well, the conference is uh, Saturday, April 9th. Um, it's an all-day event at a place called Point Lookout in Northport. It's a great uh, venue for uh, getting together uh, people to talk about um, the past, uh, the present, and the future of this really pretty vast uh, part of Maine, but a part of Maine that um, is uh, really focused on, on water, on freshwater, rivers, lakes, streams that feed into this uh, uh, large Penobscot River, which feeds into the large Penobscot Bay, which feeds into the Gulf of Maine. So it's, um, I think water is a, is a big part of what we'll be talking about on Saturday, April 9th in Northport. Uh, there were a whole series of questions that were sort of bouncing around in my mind, and I talked with some others who had been involved with Penobscot Bay conferences in the past and found out that those questions were bouncing around in mm. their heads as well. Questions about the state of the bay and the watershed, questions about the resources that are uh, present in the bay and the watershed, whether they're threatened, thriving, or you know, holding their own. Um, questions about threats to that water and the in the entire watershed, and so um, it it seemed pretty evident to, to many of us that uh, the conference was a good time, a good way for us to uh, ask these questions broadly of folks who do research or who work in the area, but also to uh, find out from uh, uh, citizens what their concerns were. Great. Thanks. And we'll keep circling back to the conference um, and the topics that are that are going to be covered there and how people can register and all that good stuff. Um, and so let's uh, let's kind of paint a picture. So for people who um, are listening so that we can sort of understand what do, what do we mean by a watershed and what do we mean by the Penobscot watershed? Um, John, do you want to sort of share a little bit about um, sort of the big picture of, of the watershed. What, what is the Penobscot watershed in your mind? Sure. First of all, I'd like to thank you for having me on the show today. It's You're a pleasure very to be here. The watershed, as you said, is uh, Maine's largest watershed. It, it uh, drains about uh, one-third of the area of the entire state of Maine. It's also the second largest watershed in New England. 
And to the Penobscot Indian Nation, it's a very sacred resource. It has allowed my tribe to survive and thrive for 10,000 years. It has uh, allowed us to gain our sustenance uh, from, the, from the watershed. We've used it as, uh, as the highway to get to wherever we needed to get to, to gather our, our food, our medicines, and our materials for shelters and for basically all of the necessities of life. So we've developed a very close, special relationship with this great watershed uh, over a very long period of time. So it's, it's really nice to be part of this uh, conference on April 9th where folks will be coming together throughout the watershed to talk about uh, how we can work together to preserve and protect and use and celebrate uh, this great watershed. Great, great. And um, Catherine, um, you have been paying attention to issues in the Penobscot watershed for a long time. Um, give us a little bit of your perspective about what the Penobscot watershed means to you. Uh, sure. So. As a trained scientist, I think of a watershed as all the land area that drains to a particular body of water, in this case, the Penobscot River and Penobscot Bay. But I also, I mean, the Penobscot watershed is huge. So it goes from Quebec, Canada in the west, all the way almost to New Brunswick in the east. So the west branch um, goes to Quebec. The east branch includes uh, Mount Katahdin and all the forests and mountains surrounding Katahdin. The Mattawamkeag reaches all the way almost to New Brunswick. And so it really, it's the heart of Maine. If you look at the watershed boundary on a map, it's the middle of Maine and one third of the state. Um, so it covers a lot. I, and I also think of it as a river of superlatives. So largest watershed in Maine, second largest watershed in New England, as John mentioned, um, the importance to the Penobscot Nation, clearly, um, and also home to the last remaining run of wild Atlantic salmon in the United States. It's the largest freshwater input to the Gulf of Maine, so um, it holds a lot of titles. Yeah, I like that. You said, I think, the watershed of superlatives. Mm -hmm. That's that's nice. Um, and so um, how, what... Uh, What's been changing in the Penobscot watershed in the last couple of decades? And maybe we'll ask Steve to sort of think, help us understand that, um, because I know you've been involved for a long time um, with Islesboro Island Trust, but also you helped coordinate and organize some early um, gatherings that were so sort of similar to this one, to have multiple different people come into the same room to talk about the issues in the Penobscot watershed. What are you seeing as changing? I think one of the um, one of the biggest and most important changes um, revolves around or comes from the work of the Penobscot River Restoration Trust, um, a, a phenomenal effort which our organization was not actually directly involved in, but we were observing and paying attention to because we knew that it would have an effect on the bay. But the Penobscot River Restoration Trust, and both John and Catherine could speak to maybe more specific details about that, uh, has uh, created a, a, a more open environment in the river for uh, sea-run species of, 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 of fish to, to return to uh, a much larger area um, in the river than they were able to uh, because of the uh, because of some dams in the river. And, um, but 
that larger area for those species to return to, and in particular, it seems to alewives, um, means that those species can increase in numbers, that their populations can increase. And so uh, that's good news mm -hmm. for um, for the other species that uh, see alewives and so forth as a... As a uh, um, uh, prey species. So um, we think that it's going to, uh, we, we can see that it's very likely to have a pretty big impact not only in the river but also in the bay. So um, that's that's a big part mm -hmm. of, uh, I think, that, that's to me that's the biggest and, and, and most significant change in recent history. Um, when we were involved with Penobscot Watershed uh, conferences during the 90s, the focus really at that time was, was um, I think somewhat understandably more on the bay because that's where the organizations were were, were uh, called home. But um, but nonetheless, uh, there was at least some appreciation uh, for uh, the the region as a whole. And and I think big questions all along the way have been, you know, what uh, what kind what is a sustainable economy? How how can people live in this region in uh, in a way that um, is compatible with uh, other species and, and with the uh, ecology of the region. So that's been an important thing. Um, we've been involved with other sorts of issues, specific issues that um, do affect the entire watershed. Uh, uh, the port of Searsport is uh, one of three ports, uh, commercial ports in Maine, and has um, serves a, a, a very important uh, purpose and, and role uh, for Maine, uh, but um, has also uh, generated uh, some controversy. Um, the Port of Searsport's uh, uh, future um, and development proposals there um, have been at times controversial. Uh, we've been very concerned about the effect on the entire watershed of that port. So we've been involved with a lot of different specific things there, which we might have time to get into later. Great, great. We, yeah, let's we'll make sure to go back to that. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about the Penobscot restoration effort. Um, and uh, John, let, let's hear a little bit about um, about the the role of the nation, um, and also just sort of your reflections on the successes of this Penobscot restoration effort, and including. When I look at the list of all the different organizations involved, it's pretty in incredible. So tell us a little bit about what that effort was about. Yeah, to the Penobscot Nation, the Penobscot River Restoration Project is by far the most exciting project uh, we've been involved with uh, for a very long time. You know, it seeks to restore 11 species of migratory fish that have been pretty much decimated by the building of dams and other impacts. Uh, starting with the Industrial Revolution. And uh, to the tribe, it's, it's a very significant project. Um, due to our agreements uh, or treaties, with, uh, starting with Massachusetts prior to 1820 and then, then with Maine in 1820, right up to the 1980 Maine Indian Land Claims Settlement Act, our tribe had always uh, reserved its right, its inherent right to uh, catch and consume fish uh, from our reservation waters. And that's a very important uh, aspect of uh, our relationship with the river. And so uh, 
the resident fish species uh, have been compromised uh, due to uh, pollution factors, and uh, there's health warnings out about uh, warning people to not eat certain amounts of fish. Uh, and so the River Restoration Project seeks to bring back uh, the original assemblage of native fish to this watershed, which we suspect will be somewhat cleaner and a little bit more healthy to consume, as they wouldn't have spent their life cycle in the, within the uh, freshwater system. Uh, so uh, it's a very important project. Uh, uh, as Steve said, uh, he mentioned about the restoration of the alewives, and that's a that's a key what we call a keystone species because it it feeds uh, so many other uh, critters. Uh, one study revealed that uh, uh, to continue to have a self-sustaining run of alewives, you only need four out of a thousand fish. So that means there's. 996 alewives out of a thousand that uh, can feed everything from humans to eagles to ospreys and to everything else that we share this uh, this great watershed with. So it's it's really exciting, uh, and I just want to also say that uh, it's more than a fish uh, project. It's it's an energy project as well. When we're all said and done. The uh, hydroelectric system within the watershed will be actually producing more electricity, uh, generating more or have the capacity to generate more than, than before the project started in 1999. So it's, a, it's really a win-win-win for uh, everybody involved here with this, with this watershed. And um, how how has the what's the um, the way that the energy portion of the project has been organized? So it had to do with um, sort of different plants changing the amount of energy that produ they're yeah, producing. Yeah, there was uh, several projects where the head ponds were raised a little bit to get a little bit more generating capacity, and there were a couple of plants on the Stillwater branch of the Penobscot River that were. Uh, rebuilt and capacity was added there as well. <clears throat> so the the I think the project um, uh, took out about 16 megawatts of capacity. Wow! Uh, but they're uh, adding in uh, more than that now because of uh, these additional enhancements. And I think they actually used John. Didn't they take some of the turbines of the dams that were removed and put them in the new? in the dams that were restarted. So they recycled some of the turbines from the dams that were taken out. So how, what has been the experience of um, these very diverse organizations, the Penobscot Nation, and is it, um, who would be the energy corporation? Well, originally it was um, Pennsylvania Power and Light right, and that uh, the original agreement was with, and those uh, those assets have been sold a couple of times, and uh, Brookfield uh, Power owns them now, and of course all the agreements and uh, various um, requirements of the project were transferred uh, to the new owners, and uh, you know the. Penobscot Nation partnered with six uh, NGO conservation groups to to carry out this. We 
formed what's called the Penobscot River Restoration Trust, which is the entity consisting of the tribe and the six conservation groups that all came together uh, to carry this project out. So that's been a real, uh, a real great uh, project just from the standpoint of folks working together. You know, it took us five years to negotiate the original agreement, and we, we say that the first uh, two or three years was just sitting down with everybody and figuring out what, uh, you know, each party uh, wanted out of this project and what our various uh, desires were. So it was, a, it was an exercise in learning how to put your shoes and put your feet in other people's shoes to really sit down and understand uh, you know what everybody uh, wanted to do here and are you um, starting to see some of the positive impacts on the system on the Penobscot watershed oh absolutely what are you seeing uh, out there? part of the project involved installing a state-of-the-art fish lift at the Milford Dam which is now the first dam on the river and uh, the very first year that that uh, that that facility was in operation, we saw uh, quite a large uh, increase in the number of fish uh, coming in uh, of most species, particularly alewives and and shad. American shad are, are uh, I, I don't remember exactly what the numbers are, but uh, the Milford fish lift has has passed uh, several hundred shad. Uh, since it's been in operation for two years. So, yeah, we're, we're starting to see some, some pretty significant returns of some of these uh, migratory fish. Wow, that's, that's really exciting. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. Um, our topic today is the Penobscot Watershed in the anticipation of the Penobscot Watershed Conference that is happening on April 9th in Northport. Um, my guests in the studio today um, was uh, are John Banks, Director of Natural Resources at the Penobscot Indian Nation. That's who you were just hearing about right there, or from um, Steve Miller, the Executive Director at Islesboro Island Trust, and Catherine Schmidt, Communications Director at Maine Sea Grant, and author of the recent book, The President's Salmon. So we were just talking about shad and alewives. Let's talk about salmon a little bit. Um, in that great phrase that you said earlier, um, that the watershed is sort of this watershed of superlatives, I think that you said that salmon, uh, tell me what you said about salmon. I said the Penobscot is home to the largest remaining run of wild Atlantic salmon in the United States. Okay, so put that in context for us in terms of wild Atlantic salmon populations as a whole. Um, so historically, there were hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Atlantic salmon all along the northeast seaboard. Um, and for and the Penobscot always had a large run, but very quickly, as rivers to the south of us were fished out and dammed, they lost their Atlantic salmon. Um, Atlantic salmon uh, need they need entire watersheds. So some of these other fish. Um, are trying to get into lakes or um, maybe halfway up a watershed or a river. But Atlantic salmon are looking for those rocky, fast, cold headwater streams in which to spawn. And so they need to get really far up into our watersheds. And so they very quickly were blocked from reaching those areas. And so the Penobscot um, had a very large run 
and managed to escape for a while some of the industrialization. So for a long time, it, it held the largest run of Atlantic salmon. And for that reason, it became a large focus for restoration, not only the recent restoration, but earlier efforts. So we've been talking about restoring this river almost as long as we've been destroying the river. So it's always been a very large focus for restoration. Uh, the Craig Brook National Fish Hatchery of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is the oldest salmon hatchery, federal salmon hatchery in the country. And that was built, uh, started in 1871, right? Um, right here in Orland where the station is uh, and those methods for helping to culture and restore fish are still ongoing there. Um, they're in kind of life support mode so we've gone from hundreds of thousands of fish to there was a run of maybe 10,000 harvest you know there was a big commercial fishery for salmon so tens of thousands of fish in the Penobscot to fewer than a thousand today. So they're at about 2% of their historic population. Wow. And um, with the restoration of the river, what's the anticipation? What do, what do we think is going to happen to the salmon? What do we hope? Well, for one thing, the return of alewives and smelts and shad and this whole focus on not just salmon but all of the other species, they all evolved to live in this river together, so it only makes sense to bring them all back together. And so they helped each other out. So if there's a lot of alewives in the river to eat, then things like eagles and cormorants and seals will eat the alewives and not migrating salmon smolts. So they kind of protect and provide cover. Um, adult salmon, after they spawn, uh, Atlantic salmon don't die. Some of them live and they go back to sea and return um, and they can spawn multiple times. And so the adult salmon, after spawning, they will feed on rainbow smelt as they're recovering and returning to sea. So smelt are really important. So all having other fish in the river will help the salmon. And then the other thing that will help the salmon is that we know we need to do more work to open up the whole watershed so they can get to those places that they need to be at. Right, right. Um, so fish are a big part of this watershed. Um, and Steve, you're out on Islesboro, so you're out in the middle of the bay. Um, help us connect what's going on out in Islesboro and some of the issues that you guys are facing out there um, and what you're seeing um, with the river watershed. Well, I think that may be the, a, a good opening for mm -hmm. uh, mentioning that um, Islesboro Islands Trust is working with a, a phenomenal team of researchers, largely from the University of Maine system, but from other colleges in Maine, to take a look at uh, fisheries in the bay as well as, you know, uh, throughout the watershed to see what that sort of symbiotic relationship might be or has been, first of all, has been. So we're looking at the history of fisheries within that whole system, uh, which is uh, just breathtakingly significant in, uh, of, in magnitude, as well as what it is currently and what the river restoration work may mean for uh, all of those fish species in, in Penobscot Bay as well as within the uh, freshwater part of the watershed. So um, the team is uh, led by Jim Wilson, uh, I guess a retired uh, University of Maine uh, uh, professor, and, and um, we're uh, expecting to hear little pieces of their research at the conference on April 9th. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, they're... Um, 
scientific reports on their efforts are expected a little bit later in uh, June and July, um, and the expectation is that those uh, will likely find publication in peer-reviewed scientific journals and so forth. Um, and I think it's sort of almost perhaps anyway, or we're hoping that it's the foundation for more discussion about um, the role that uh, fisheries, including uh, sustenance, harvesting of fish species, uh, will have in, in our um, you know, sustainable economic future in the region. So the research is looking at the historical commercial use of the bay? Looking at that, also um, charting that in a timeline along with industrial kinds of uh, development with the bay to see whether or not the demise of species has any connection to those kinds of things like the erection of dams, but also um, uh, points at which use of pesticides became um, you know, rather common within the watershed, points at which um, uh, non-point port source pollution um, would have been known to have uh, begun to affect the ecology of the area. So um, by charting timelines for both the, 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 the fisheries and, and, and other, uh, other species in the, in the watershed, as well as the human activities in the watershed, we're, we're uh, asking the question, or the team is asking the question, is there a, uh, a sort of measurable relationship and what does that mean for the future? Can we um, uh, anticipate that some of the efforts to reduce non-point source pollution and so forth and other threats, um, will that as well as the river restoration um, uh, likely result in in an increase uh, or return to anything even close to the kinds of uh, uh, numbers and diversity of species in the, in the bay and in the watershed? Um, I'm involved in that effort as well, and we're trying to take a network approach to looking at the watershed as a network of streams, um, and so what happens in one part of the network is going to affect other networks, and we're really trying to do something that I've been struggling with is we have all these timelines. So we have timelines of the number of dams that were put in on the watershed. We have timelines of fish harvest, commercial ground fish and, and, and pelagic fish. So cod fisheries, mackerel fisheries, menhaden fisheries, um, alewives, salmon, all of these fish that were caught in Penobscot Bay and looking at those timelines of harvest and looking at fisheries farther up in the watershed and sort of trying to superimpose all of them and look for connections in the network using both um, chronological timelines and mapping to try to tease out connections and see if we can find more. We know all of these things happen together and influence each other, but trying to quantify, I think, a little more mm -hmm. how that happened. Great. Sounds really Fascinating, um, and it sort of makes me want to ask John, um, help us gain a scope of the Penobscot Nation's use of the watershed in terms of the geography and the scope of, of how much, you know, Catherine and Steve are talking about sort of historical use and, and various different kinds of uses over time. Um, how about the nation? Yeah, historically our tribal members would travel down to the coast in the summertime to gather uh, fish, shellfish, and and hang out down on the coast. There's uh, a lot of shell middens 
that they find down along uh, various areas of the coast and uh, tribal families would uh, head down to the coast after planting their gardens in the springtime and hang around and eat lobsters all day. And then uh, they'd come back, you know, later on in the summer to harvest the, the uh, bounty from the various gardens that they planted. And then in the wintertime, they would uh, go inland and make their winter camps and do a lot of uh, hunting and, and gathering uh, of uh, various uh, animals. But uh, this discussion that I'm uh, hearing now about all of the research and stuff really, uh, you know, really makes me happy in that people are really starting to understand that everything is connected, uh, you know, in the natural world. And what happens uh, in one area affects uh, other areas. And water actually does obey the laws of gravity. It flows downhill. And so what happens in the upper watershed affects, you know, uh, has the potential to affect uh, every community uh, along the river. So, uh, again, this, uh, this conference on April 9th is really exciting uh, to me that it does bring the entire watershed together to, to have these very important discussions. Uh, one area of research, again, that involves uh, the alewives, uh, uh, says that um, the, uh, the collapse of the near-shore cod fishery uh, can be correlated uh, to the uh, the loss of the uh, young alewives coming out of the, the river system. And so uh, these connections are, are starting to be made and starting to be understood, and I think uh, we're heading in a very positive direction. Um, perhaps our listeners have some insights that they want to share with us as well. So we'll go ahead and open up the phone lines. Um, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations today. Um, our topic is the Penobscot Watershed in anticipation of the Penobscot Watershed Conference happening in Northport on April 9th. And my guests in the studio are John Banks, Director of Natural Resources, at the Penobscot Indian Nation, Steve Miller, Executive Director at Islesboro Island Trust, and Catherine Schmidt, Com Communications Director at Maine Sea Grant and author of the recent book, The President's Salmon. So folks out there, if you have been listening to this show or just tuning in and have either some questions or comments for either of these three guests um, or things that you've observed in the Penobscot watershed, changes that you're observing or, or hopes for the future that you may have, um, or even nuts and bolts questions about the upcoming conferences, um, please give us a shout here at the station. The toll-free number is one 625 9378 or 1-866-625-WERU. Oh, I, different number? Um, I'm so it, so I, somebody was trying to tell me something that I wasn't quite understanding if you were wondering what that pause was about. Um, so anyways, give us a shout at the station and, um, we'd love to, to get some insights from you all. Um, so let's talk about the conference just a little bit more. Catherine, I think that you have, um, a conference agenda in front of you. Give us I some do. highlights. What are we expecting? Um, sure. Well, we're, um, very excited um, that um, the Penobscot Nation is going to 
help open the conference with a ceremony um, so that will open the conference and, and set the tone and remind us all of why we're there. And then uh, U.S. Representative Shelley Pingree will be giving a welcome address. So Shelley is from the watershed, and so we're hoping that um, she will help get us started. And then Bob Stenick from the University of Maine will be giving the keynote presentation, presenting some of this research that Steve and I just mentioned, taking that big picture watershed bay connection. And all of that inspiration will send people off to some concurrent workshops. And so there's a lot. There's a lot to choose from. And I think people are going to have a hard time picking which sessions to go to. But that's what happens when you try to cover the largest watershed in Maine. So there are, there's, are environmental and water sessions on sort of indicators of environmental health, lakes, streams, fish, the bay. There's also an, a thread on watershed economy. So forests, food, what's the other one, Steve? Production. Production. Various kinds. Um, so manufacturing. There's uh, some bay-focused fo sessions, maritime history and industry, both past, present, and future. In particular, a session looking at the future workforce of the bay. So what what will our working waterfronts and and do we have you know what kind of jobs can we offer to young people who are growing up here uh, recreation and tourism is a theme um, how do we all collaborate it is such a big watershed and we're so <laughs> spread out and so we're going to look at examples from near and far on people who are collaborating to to uh, make progress um, climate change threads some environmental policy threads it's a lot yeah, it's a lot. And um, Steve, you have gathered a group of folks around you to help sort of pull this together. Um, tell us a little bit about sort of some of the thinking that's gone into it and who all's involved. I think in many ways that's one of the most exciting things about this conference, actually. <laughs> Certainly for me it is. Um, in the same way that the Penobscot River Restoration Trust, I think, was so successful, uh, in part because many different interests in, in groups were involved. We've had 15 different groups and uh, uh, organizations uh, come together to plan this conference. Um, they're functioning in a sense as a steering committee and making decisions about uh, what workshops and who we might find to speak at those workshops and so forth. Um, I can read down through the... I, think I'll get them all, but if I don't, please <laughs> forgive me. But, uh, Maine Sea Grant has been tremendously important in the planning. Uh, University of Maine Cooperative Extension, uh, the Penobscot East Resource Center, uh, Penobscot Marine Museum, the Lower Penobscot Watershed Coalition, the Belfast Bay Watershed Coalition, the Island Institute, the Natural Resources Council of Maine, the Sierra Club of Maine, Maine Lakes Society, the Nature Conservancy, of course the Penobscot Nation, Maine Coast Heritage Trust, and Islesboro Islands Trust. So it's a big uh, group of, of, of people and interests that are planning that. And uh, just some nuts and bolts on the conference. What What's the time of the conference? Uh, it begins, uh, we'll open doors Saturday morning at 8 o'clock and um, goes until five o'clock in the evening and it's in northport at point lookout and how can people f um, find out more information about the conference or register 
They can do that at Sea Grant's website. So it's seagrant.umaine.edu. And if you go to our homepage, there's a link right on the right-hand side to uh, registration and also a draft program. So you can look in more detail about what the presentations are going to be. And that's probably the simplest way to do it, but IslesboroIslandsTrust.org. Um, yeah, from our homepage, you can click on news and also get links to registration and to Sea Grant's page. And what we're finding now is that almost all of the 15 organizations on the steering committee have put up uh, in, you know, registration links on their on their uh, website. So yeah, it's pretty readily available um, if you yeah, go to any of those sites. Great, great. Um, if you wanted to call in um, with questions or comments, the number here is one 625 9378 That's one 625 weru Or you can also call 469-0500. That's 469-0500. I just realized that I skipped over Friends of Sears Island. I apologize to Friends of Sears Island, but um, I, I especially want to make sure that they're identified as uh, a part of the steering committee because their efforts have been tremendously important. And I think Sears Island has, in fact, as itself, in itself, um, sort of been the icon of, uh, of, of uh, interest and, and, uh, and, and even uh, a representative of sort of the, some of the threats in, in uh, the lower part of the watershed. Um, so we were talking earlier about the Penobscot River Restoration Initiative and how that's been a really incredible success story. Um, let's talk about some of the other issues that the Penobscot watershed has faced over the years. Um, it seems like, you know, every year or two or three, there's something that comes up that sort of gathers people's attention. Steve, you mentioned a couple of things related to Sears Island. Um, there's also been the question about lobster territory at the upper end of the bay that's been closed because of mercury contamination. Catherine, tell us a little bit about that issue. Uh, sure. So also very close to where we're sitting in the station was a chemical plant um, known as Holtrachem. <clears throat> it was owned and operated under various companies and names over the years. Uh, was built in the late 1960s. It made chlorine and other chemicals primarily for the paper industry. And in order to make one of the ways that you make chlorine is from salt water, and you use mercury as a catalyst. So that meant that the factory stored and used incredible volumes of pure elemental mercury, which is a very potent neurotoxin. So it's damaging to human nerve cells and brains. It's especially damaging to um, young children and, um, and pregnant women and fetuses. Uh, so mercury is very poisonous. And this factory used these chemicals at a time before we had a lot of regulations about chemical use. And so there were massive quantities spilled to the river and released to the air. And so the Penobscot, the lower Penobscot River, is a mercury hotspot. Um, and there's been a lot of litigation that was led by Maine People's Alliance and the Natural Resources Defense Council uh, beginning in the early 2000s to force cleanup of the plant. So normally this would probably be a Superfund site, but because 
one of the owners, one of the previous owners of the mercury of the Holterkin plant is still in existence, um, that means there's other way, there's other processes for forcing cleanup. Um, so Superfund is only if it's been abandoned, but because the company is still in existence, there's a process under the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act to force cleanup, citizen lawsuit. And so there's been a series of court cases and decisions, and the first one was um, a major study, thousands of pages of, of scientific study, to document the pollution that's in the river, to document that it did indeed come from this factory, that it has spread, um, so it moves, so mercury sticks to sediment and it moves up and down with the tide, and so you can detect the mercury from the Orrington factory all the way up to Bangor and VZ, head of tide, and all the way down to the upper bay. And so once that was discovered, the Department of Marine Resources made a very quick decision to close the lobster and crab fishery in the very upper part of Penobscot Bay. And now the second phase is um, there's now an engineering study that's going to try to figure out if there's any way to actually remove, get some of the mercury out of the system. Which I think is a uh, kind of an introduction to to a species that we haven't really talked much about, um, and, and that's lobsters. Um, uh, lobsters are still the uh, New England's uh, Penobscot Bay produces, or, or the catches in Penobscot Bay of lobsters are the largest in New England, and, and it's a huge part of not only the local economy in the watershed, but also the economy of Maine. Um, it is a species that continues to, you know, despite some of the um, uh, threats and so forth uh, coming from any number of different places, um, including ocean acidification and, and temperature rises, but it's a species that continues to appear pretty healthy in, in the bay system. Uh, having closure on a part of that fishery is uh, phenomenally important, um, both in terms of perception of the species and, and it's, it's um, uh, uh, you know, whether it's healthy to continue eating it and so forth. So um, uh, the many lobstermen in uh, uh, the parts of the bay that are, are, you know, I think understandably quite concerned about that closure. There were some uh, eight or nine men that were, uh, or people that were fishing in that area who no longer can fish there. I'm not sure where they've gone and how that's worked out for them this past year. But, um, but all fishermen in the region are concerned about uh, what this might mean to their future. So, um, so that's a a, a very big uh, concern. Um, we talk about wanting to restore fisheries, but we also want to maintain what we have. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then w some of the other things that we just hear about all the time, we, you, we've talked a little bit about Sears Island. Let, let's talk about it a little bit more. What's the status of Sears Island? What's happening out there now? Uh, well, one, uh, I think, good thing is that uh, roughly two-thirds of Sears Island has been protected via a conservation easement. Um, one remaining sort of concern is that one-third hasn't. <laughs> uh, there were many of us who thought that perhaps the time had come in the mid-aughts to um, uh, dedicate Sears Island to a, uh, at very least, an environmentally benign or, or um, positive kind of future. Um, that didn't exactly happen that way, but, but uh, much of it is protected. Um, there have been 
development proposals floated for Sears Island since at least uh, the 1970s. And um, a number of different people have, over the course of time, raised concerns about those development proposals. In 1971, there was an oil refinery, if all things proposed to be built on Sears Island. Um, that was followed by a proposal to build a nuclear power plant, which was followed by a proposal to build a coal-fired plant, uh, which was followed by a proposal to build a cargo port. The cargo port proposal took years and years of time, energy, money, <laughs> uh, attention from, from a number of people. Uh, but finally, in 1996, resulted in the withdrawal of the proposal. Um, I, I could get into some of the uh, really rather unsavory details of that Many of those many years, but maybe we can see whether there's any interest in the uh, listenership here for that. But, but um, in 1996, the proposal to develop this that uh, that port on Sears Island was redrawn. Uh, however, the state proceeded with acquisition, and so in 1998, it was actually acquired. Title to the island was acquired by uh, the state of Maine. Um, and then, during the early aughts, uh, it, it, there was some discussion. Uh, initially, it was discussion um, in sort of quiet corridors of, of Augusta uh, for a, an LNG, a liquefied natural gas uh, facility, to be built on Sears Island. Uh, once the Badalchi administration recognized that the public was quite <coughs> concerned about that, um, a planning process uh, developed that uh, resulted in the conservation easement I mentioned, also resulted in agreement between state interests and local interests that the island would never be developed for certain things, including an LNG facility. Um, meanwhile, uh, the port of Searsport, which is just next to Sears Island, but shares the same water access, um, has continued to provide a uh, an important uh, port service to to, to Maine, but um, has occasionally uh, at least entertained um, some development possibilities or proposals there that. Um, that would threaten the kind of uh, sort of sustainable economic future that I think many of us really do desire. Um. Um, I think that I was just thinking, Steve, as you were talking, that the resolution of Sears Island and the conservation that took place and that sort of bringing together to actually look towards the future is very much related, related to the Penobscot River Restoration Project, which so both solutions happened after years and decades, if not centuries, of controversy and um, sort of um, fighting over the future of this place. And they both were so the Penobscot is also home to some pretty amazing solutions on on sort of towards sustainability. And I think, you know, we haven't had time to really talk about the forests in the upper watershed, but maybe that's that could be the setting for some of the next big um, collaborative solutions that are found in the Penobscot watershed. And there's a workshop on that. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, let's let's spend a couple minutes talking about um, what you guys view each of you as sort of the emerging 
challenges. And then we'll wind down with um, what you see as sort of the, the hope and anticipation for the future. But let's start with what you see as the emerging challenges. Who wants to go first? John, how about you? You know, I think uh, Catherine mentioned uh, the forests and the upper watershed. And uh, I think some of the emerging challenges right now have to do with the economies of some of the towns in the upper watershed. Uh, we've heard a lot lately, there's been a lot in the news about some of the paper mill closures. And although there may be an environmental benefit uh, to some of those, it's having a tremendous uh, impact on the forest products industry, which uh, the northern part of the state depends on very heavily, as does the Penobscot Indian Nation. We have a, a forestry program. We, we uh, harvest our lands in a sustainable manner, and uh, we have to have markets uh, for that wood in order to manage our lands the I way we would like to, where do you send to manage wood? those. And so these mill closures are kind of a bittersweet uh, thing uh, for us. Yeah, they're probably... Uh, you know, resulting in improved water quality in the Penobscot River watershed, but it's at a tremendous cost to the economy of the northern part of the state and many of these towns. So that's an emerging challenge, I think, that uh, we really need to focus on. And I, I would hope that uh, uh, recreational use and tourism and uh, that sort of thing will, will help to... Uh, you know, maybe replace some of the jobs that are being lost in the in the paper mill sector. But that's a that's a huge issue right now, and there's a lot of attention being paid to that, rightfully so. Yeah, yeah. Catherine, what do you see as some of the emerging challenges for the Penobscot watershed? Um, I definitely agree with John. I think the forests and the economy, and I think we have. To me, it's about what decision we we're kind of at this decision point of moving forward and are we going to look to the river and the natural resources as you know a source of livelihood not in an extractive way um, but in a way that can sustain everybody or are we gonna turn our back on the river again so and pursue things that could you know pursue a kind of economy that could be put anywhere um, so I think I kind of see that decision about how we want to move forward, whether it's the forests in the upper watershed or the waterfronts of the bay. Great. And Steve, emerging challenges well, sure, in the Penobscot watershed. There probably are many, and, and both John and Catherine have mentioned uh, a few that we share concerns about. Um, but earlier, uh, Catherine talked about how the fisheries research was a network approach because things are connected, and John pointed out that all things are connected. And, those kinds of uh, understanding, that kind of understanding of the way the world works, uh, I think makes some global uh, developments and issues are, uh, important to our region as well. And I'm thinking at the moment, uh, uh, first and foremost, about climate change. And that is already affecting what's going on in the Bay. I talked to a lobsterman a couple years ago who uh, in March caught a shedder at 50 fathoms and I just you know he was astonished that that could happen that way but probably had a lot to do with the temperature in the water but at any rate there are changes afoot and um, they are dramatic uh, uh, related to that is the um, uh, resource depletion throughout the world of 
a variety of different kinds of constituents that we consider particularly important to our way of life. And then energy considerations. Where is our energy source going to be tomorrow and then, you know, five years, ten years from tomorrow? I think that there are some bright lights on the horizon in terms of energy production uh, through wind, solar, and uh, uh, other renewable mechanisms, but, um, but it's a big, big concern for our region. And these are all issues that um, will be addressed at the 2016 Penobscot Watershed Conference, which will be held. Make sure you guys, I'm getting this right. It is April 8th at Northport, in Northport. Um, and yeah, and so the times of the conference are? So the conference is on Saturday, April 9th. April 9th. And that's from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Great. And then there's an event. There's sort of a preliminary event the night before. And that event is the Great Bear Sea Film and Panel Discussion, um, which is a community conversation about ocean planning. And that will be happening on Friday, April 8th in Northport. Um, And if if folks want more information about either of these two events, they can go to the website of Maine Sea Grant or Islesboro Island Trust. Let's wrap up and each take just a you know short statement of what you see as um, what gives you hope about the Penobscot watershed into the future. And Catherine, let's start with you. Uh, well, it is uh, we are into spring and it's the last day of March. So what gives me hope is seeing fish come back to the river every spring. Great. And Steve, how about you? I think the thing that gives me the greatest amount of hope right now uh, is represented in the steering committee for this conference. It's people coming together to talk about their concerns in a constructive way uh, to, as John said earlier, um, you know, put shoes of of another onto your own feet and see what that feels like. Um, I think that's reason for hope. Great. And... John, as the representative in the room of the people who have lived in this watershed um, for the, a long, 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 long time, I wanted to give you the last word. What gives you hope? Well, I think, uh, you know, I'd echo particularly what Steve said about people coming together in a constructive way to really work together and uh, understand uh, these various uh, connections. Uh, you know, this watershed connects us. It uh it really does in so many ways, and it's it's really uh, exciting uh, for me and for many members of my tribe to understand that that people are starting to really uh, want to work together for the future of this this great watershed. And I think the model of the Penobscot River Restoration Trust uh, is a great model on how how people can come together to really uh, get you know get some progress made and. Uh, to me, just that aspect of uh, people coming together and working together really gives me a great deal of hope, uh, not just uh, re- locally and regionally, but for the sake of the whole planet. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, I'm excited. Thank you, John. Um, we have, alas, come to the time um, where our Coastal Conversations um, show today uh, has come to an end. We have been talking about the Penobscot Watershed in anticipation of the Penobscot Watershed Conference coming up. Um, I'd like to thank our guests for their time and their excellent work in the Penobscot Watershed. My guests today um, were John Banks, the Director of Natural Resources at the Penobscot Indian Nation, Steve Miller, the Executive 
Executive Director at Islesboro Island Trust, and Catherine Schmidt, the Communications Director at Maine Sea Grant, and the author of the recent book, The President's Salmon. Thanks um, also to uh, our engineer today. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from Maine Sea Grant at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Join us from 10 to 11 a.m. on the fourth Friday of each month. I recognize today is a Thursday, but normally we're on the fourth Friday of each month, including next Friday. Um, <clears throat> and um, our show's theme music is A Following Sea, um, which was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to John for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good morning. Well, we've got a little bit of time before the hour of 11 o'clock comes your way and uh, the next program. Let's give you a quick uh, little uh, look ahead at uh, community activities in Orono. As we speak, coming up at tw uh, 1230, Movement Building, the power to create change. Now, this is a presentation by Larry Danzinger, who you might uh, recognize the name of if you listen to WERU regularly, former coordinator of the Resources for Organizing and Social Change organization. That'll be in the Bangor Room, Memorial Union, University of Maine at 1230 today. And that's part of the Socialist and Marxist Studies series. Also coming up, a note about a pro very special uh, program uh, coming up from uh, from Conflict to Connection, an introduction to the basics of nonviolent communication, Saturday, April 2nd, and Sunday, April 3rd, 9 to 4 p.m. at the Green Gem Holistic Healing Oasis, 900 State Street in Bangor, facilitated by Peggy Smith. Uh, want to be sensitive to others while still meeting your own needs? Want to have easier and deeper, deeper relationships? Want to learn how to resolve conflicts more skillfully? More information? Please come to weru.org. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners. You make community radio possible. 